We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. Over the 35 years that I've been helping couples on the brink of divorcing, I often get one half suggest perhaps they will try again somewhere down the line, but they're just too exhausted and too hurt at the moment. I've often wondered what would happen if life did throw them back together again. So I was thrilled to discover a Twitter account from a couple called Second Time Around. The account is run by Tommy and Gina Mulligan, and they're my witnesses today. We're getting to discover what is different when you marry the same person for the second time, plus what they can teach us about forgiveness and falling back in love. Now, Mulligan isn't your real name, but you have a Mulligan marriage. So explain to me what a Mulligan marriage is. Correct. I kind of chose that name because, I mean, we went through, I went through a bunch of iterations of the name and I couldn't figure out something that really described us. And although I don't golf, I'm a big sports fanatic. And one of the things that I do know about golf playing it a few times is that you do get what's called a mulligan. A mulligan in in golf is a a basically a do-over. So I figured what a great way to kind of describe us and maybe others who could relate to us out there. So that's basically what mulligan is. And I decided let that be our last name. And so that's basically a do-over of our marriage. Sounds a wonderful idea. But you've known each other for a very long time. So, Gina, how old were the two of you when you actually met for the first time? When Tommy and I first met, I was 13. He was 15. So very young. Very, very young. What memories do you have of him at that point? Not a lot. Like I said, I was so young and he was young. We were at an annual picnic it was a school picnic that all the Catholic schools where we grew up had every year. And like he said in our letter to you, all the kids at the Catholic schools were very excited. That's all they talked about. You would go out, get new clothes, and the parents were excited for it too because they would go to this picnic. They would see friends that they grew up with, and you would just spend the day. It was at an amusement park. And I can remember I was with one of my girlfriends who ironically was his cousin and her and I were riding around on the different rides at the amusement park. And there was a short delay because it rained. So we were in line to get on a roller coaster and she started talking to this boy and it was Tommy. So he and I started to talk. We rode a couple of rides and then I didn't see him after that. We exchanged numbers, but back in those days, we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. And he called me and wanted me to go to a movie with him. I was 13. My father didn't let me date. So I told him my father said no, and I didn't see him after that. How incredibly appropriate that you were just about to get on a roller coaster. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what did you think when you first saw Gina, Tommy? Uh, in her Sunday best, I hasten to add. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't say Sunday best. You know, it's it's kind of a given at this amusement park that everybody's going to be wet at one time or another because either it rains halfway through the picnic or there's a bunch of water rides. So my memory is a lot more vivid because I guess this was kind of my first love or first sign of seeing like instant true love or or how you want to puppy love, however you want to describe it. But that day with her just kind of just stuck in my mind for some reason. It was, like she said, it was kind of a brief encounter, you know, but that brief encounter lasted with me for a long time. I mean, lasted that I still remember exactly what she wore and that she had (laughs) purple eyeshadow. Oh, right. What was she wearing then? Uh, actually, she was wearing, I believe they were, it was stonewashed jeans. She had these little white kids on there, just little, you know, tennis shoes, white shirt. She had beautiful green eyes, brown hair. And like I said, she was just soaking wet at that time just because it, ha- it was raining. And I just thought she was the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Oh, so it took another two years before fate once again brought you back together. So how did that happen, Tommy? Yeah, a few years after that, her brother actually started going to one of the high schools in the area. I left to go to a different Catholic high school, and her brother had come to the other Catholic high school that was in the area, and that's where most of my friends were. So what happened was we were just kind of all hanging out and We exchanged phone numbers, you know, so that we can go out and do things or whatever. So I went home and back in those days, you had a phone book. You just didn't have a phone that you could open. So we had these little phone books and I opened it up and noticed, wow, Matt's number is the same as Gina's, you know? And it was kind of like in the next couple of times I, I seen him, I said, do you happen to have a sister named Gina? He's like, yeah, why? And I'm like, no reason. I just asked. You know, I didn't want to go into the whole kind of thing. And we just kind of left that there again. So how did you actually start dating for the first time then? He didn't have the courage to ask me out. Oh. He made one of his friends ask me out. Uh, So I said no to his friend. And his friend said to me, well, it's not really for me. It's for Tommy because Tommy's too afraid to ask you out. Did that actually make him more appealing to you or less appealing that he didn't have the courage to ask you? In a way, it made him more appealing because I thought, well, he must really like me if he's too afraid to ask me out. So we were at a friend's house because we all had mutual friends because my brother was there, Matt was there. So Tommy came out and asked me out. So I went out with Tommy and I was still young. I was only 15, 16. And of course, my dad said it was, my father said it was okay at that time. So Tommy and I went out a couple of times and it, of course, he was very smitten. I was still young, but we went out a couple of times and things seemed to be going well until he started listening to a friend who said that I was talking to other boys, which was not true. And he believed her. Oh, Ironically, it was her best friend at the time. 
So it sounds like every high school movie intrigue sort of kind of situation. He was saying this to her and she was saying this to them. And so you split up. Exactly. And he started dating her. Yes. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I think I've seen the movie, actually. (laughs) It was like a movie. At this point, everybody starts singing and dancing in the hallway, don't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't. He may have, but I didn't. <laughs> you're, you're singing the My Heart is Broken on the Swings number. Right. <laughs> yes, I was on the swing set while he was dancing in the hallway. <laughs> so somehow he managed to get a second chance. So tell me about that, Gina. Yes, he got a second chance. It took a lot of hard work on his part because my heart was broken. Matt, my brother, was still friends with him. So he asked me out again. He called me on the phone and asked me if I would give him another chance. So we went to a park. He did a picnic for me. We went to a movie and I gave him another chance. Like I said, it took a lot of hard work on his part. He has a very good sense of humor. He's very funny. All the girls loved him. So we got back together. It was going well. I was probably 18. I had just graduated. My mom and my stepfather had moved out of where we lived up north, and they moved to Michigan, and I went for the summer. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, we kind of broke up right before that. It was kind of on again, off again through that time, you know, because I was starting college. She was coming out of high school. So it was kind of a phase where we were on again, off again, and it was kind of off again when she had moved to Michigan. I had just gone for the summer. And like he said, he was starting college. So that's kind of hard. You know, he was going to college. I had just graduated high school. Matt had came to pick me up in Michigan and Tommy came with him. And then, of course, we started again, like you said earlier, the roller coaster, up and down, up and down, up and down. And we were young. So when he came to Michigan to pick me up with Matt, it started all over again. And my mom used to say to me, you two just can't stay away from each other, can you? I said, no. She said, you're going to end up marrying this guy one day. (laughs) And Andrew, I saved her that day too, because I I recall her walking down a flight of steps. She tripped and fell into my arms and her lips happened to catch mine. So I look at it as I saved her life that day by not letting her fall all the way down the steps. You're such a true gentleman, Tommy. I I am. I am. See what I said about the sense of humor? (laughs) Yeah, I can see how it might sort of grow on a girl, to be perfectly honest. It does. Sometimes it's for as long as we've been together, the sense of humor comes out at times that it shouldn't come out, but it's hard not to laugh. So somehow you ended up living with Tommy and his mother. I did. My father and stepmother had had a baby. My younger brother, I love with all my heart. He was kind of like our first child. I took care of him till he was seven, until we moved down south. My stepmother and I, for the longest time, had a very rocky relationship. So Tommy's mom asked me to move in with them. And Tommy and I lived together for about three years. And again, things got rocky between he and I, and I had moved back 
in with my father and my stepmother. But I, actually, I think it's not so much like a roller coaster. It seems like more like a yo-yo, to be yeah. perfectly honest. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but again, we were young. We were in our early 20s. We weren't communicating well with one another. We didn't know how to communicate. Tommy had that mindset that he needed to be in charge. He was the man in the relationship. I was the female in the relationship. And I guess it stems back to how he was brought up and how I was brought up. And it just, it wasn't working. And I should imagine that um, the fact that you're both Catholics and you're living under the same roof and you're not married, mm-hmm. I think that's a no, 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 isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. My father had a very hard time with it. Very hard time. And I was surprised that his mother had asked me to move in because she was very, very, very strong Catholic woman. As well as worked at the church. Mm-hmm. So that was surprising. After a while, my father was okay with it, but it took a while. I mean, it seems like a miracle you managed to get married for the first time, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow, somehow you did. So explain it to me. Well, we were planning on getting married anyway. It just became time. You know, a lot of our friends were getting married and me and Gina were together for a while. We always knew we were going to be together, but, you know, since we were up and down, on and off, it was kind of one of those things where, okay, are are we going to do this? Are we not going to do this? I was still in school at the time. Gina was trying to find her way, and we were planning on running off and just getting married because we really didn't want to do the whole wedding thing because of, again, the Catholic religion. And we wanted, sometimes in the Catholic religion, the wedding isn't yours. It's your family's. Mm. And they invite people that you've never even met before. And we didn't want to do that. We just wanted for it to be friends and family, close family for us to know that. And then for some unknown reason, Gene was having some physical issues and, and went to the doctor. And we found out basically that we wouldn't be able to have kids if we got married. Not Uh, if we got married. But, you know, kids in general, you know, not if we got married, but, you know, we wouldn't be able to have children because of she had what was called polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm. And usually it is on one ovary. Well, Jean is the exception. She has it on two. So we were basically told that we couldn't have kids. So it was a very emotional day when that came about. And she said, if you didn't want to marry me, I understand. And I said, no, I I want to get married. And we ended up just really doing it, you know, at the justice of the peace. We went, we just got a marriage license because we did love each other. And, you know, and if we didn't have kids, that was great with me. If it was something we could look into adoption down the road or things changed medically, that would have been great. But if not, I would have been happy to spend the rest of my life just myself and Gina. Oh, that really is absolutely beautiful. But you did have children, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> we got married. My mom and my stepfather ended up moving from Michigan to where we are now down in Georgia. We came down and visited them for about four or five days, went back to Pennsylvania. And Tommy said, something's just telling me that you're pregnant. I'm like, I'm not pregnant. And it ended up, I was pregnant. Gosh. How did you know, Tommy? I, it's 
just want to, I get weird feelings about stuff anyway. I'm just (laughs) one of those people that, you know, uh something's wrong, something's going to happen. And it's just one of those kind of psychic kind of things. But, you know, being with her for so long, you know, I, I just could tell a difference in her. And the funny thing is, too, is when we went back to the doctors and they asked, did another doctor put you on any kind of fertility medicine or anything? It was like, no, we actually didn't have to pay for anything to have our first son because it was such a rare, rare thing. First, to have the polycystic ovarian syndrome on one ovary, but to have it on two. And then it was extremely, extremely rare to be able to have children naturally. So they actually did a case study on Gina and asked if it was okay if they followed us through the entire pregnancy and they would pay for the whole thing and film it and use it in a medical library so that, you know, they could refer back to it because of something that really rarely happens. Gosh. And how did um, being parents change you? I loved it. It was great. I think it brought us even closer. Our first child was five months old when Tommy was transferred with the job he was in at the time to here, to Georgia. So it was a big change for us because we both grew up in Pennsylvania. We had a five-month-old, so I was scared, nervous, moving out of state. Our whole family, except my mom and my stepfather, were here. But I feel like it made us grow up a lot. I mean, we were grown up. I was 27 and he was 30. No, 29. Sorry. So I was glad we did it. I was very glad we did it. It changed us, I feel, a lot. It really did. It brought us a lot closer. We moved here. We stayed with my mom and my stepfather for a while. We bought our very first house. And then again, after having our first child, I wanted more. Of course, with our second child, we had help. I was on fertility drugs and things like that. And of course, that scared Tommy because all he kept thinking was, you're going to get pregnant and you're going to be pregnant with three, four, five kids. Which we've just had a friend who went through that about that same time. (laughs) And I was pregnant with twins, but I had lost the one early on, which was, was okay. I mean, you know, but we had our second son and- I love both my children the same, but my second son is just, he'll always be my baby. I mean, both my kids will always be my baby, but I am closer with my second one. My first one's very close with Tommy. He and Tommy are very much alike, very much alike. (laughs) So I'm thinking you're sort of all pretty much set. You've got two children. You've got your own house. Both of you are committed to this relationship. You love each other. So. I can't quite understand why we're about to have another great big dip in the roller coaster. (laughs) Well, I'll start here just by saying I I always wanted a better life. Even though, like I said, I had a great life growing up, but things were different, you know, when we had our children. And I I wanted to be really driven at work. I I was driven to succeed. And I got a, a job when we moved down here and it allowed me to do that. And I think I got a little too driven. I had blinders on. I missed a lot of things that were going on around me. I focused on work. I focused so much on the kids that there was the part where me and Gina were starting to lose connection. And, you know, the song by Montgomery Gentry, 
I never seen the flood come, even though I felt the rain. It was like that. Even though it was raining, I didn't know it was going to flood. You know, and I and I think Gina kind of fell into those kind of things too, as you know, she started to work with different people, and and she was out of the house now and not with the kids. And I think it was just one of those things where, you know, and, and we preach this to our friends too, you know, kind of misery loves company. A lot of the people she worked with were single. A lot of the people she worked with were either divorced. And it was one of those things where they wanted people around them to be like that. And Gina kind of fell into that kind of side. I fell into the so driven side. And then we were just all the, however we connected, we, it just missed. And we didn't listen to each other. We weren't communicating. Everything that we had, and it was on this great path, just fell apart. And how was this time for you, Gina? Hard. Very hard. And like Tommy said, we weren't communicating. I would say something to Tommy, and I felt like it was going in one ear and out the other. Tommy would say something to me, and he felt like it was going in one ear and out the other. I would talk to my stepfather a lot. He's not with us anymore, but I would always go to him because I felt like if I went to my mom, that was harder. My stepfather and I were very close, but I felt like he could be like an outside source. And he would say, look, Gina, you have to do this, this, and this. You guys have to communicate because he was married before. He didn't have any kids, nor did he and my mom, but he was married before. And he said, that's the biggest part of a relationship. You and Tommy have to communicate with one another. You have to sit down. And Tommy and I did do marriage counseling before we got divorced. But I think at that point, Tommy still felt like he had to be the man of the house. He has to do this. I have to do that. And in one of our marriage counseling sessions, the counselor said to him, you have to stop treating Gina like she's the child and you're the parent. Well, that really upset him. And she asked me, she said, do you feel that way? And I said, I do. I feel like I always have to ask permission. Tommy, is it okay if I do this? Do you think it's okay if we do this? I guess I had blinders on. I never realized I asked permission. And I thought, why am I asking permission? I'm not one of the kids. I'm, we're in this together. And we were having some financial issues with the house and things like that. And it just, everything, like he said, it started to rain and, and then the floodgates just opened. Do you think it was a surprise for both of you almost that you got to this point? Or is it more a surprise for Tommy than it was for you? I think it was a surprise for both of us. It just hit. And then when it got to that point where it was going to end, I think Tommy was backpedaling and trying to do everything he could to fix it. And at that point, I was just like, I was done. I felt like I did what I could. And then I look back now and think if we would have just did this, this and that, we would have stayed together. It would have been so hard and it would have been a struggle. But I think us getting divorced helped both of us grow so much and be better and make our marriage the second time around so much stronger. So this is the point where what you call your altered timeline comes in. So explain <laughs> to me what an altered timeline is. It's kind of like a blip. It's kind of what just happened with COVID. 
where everything just shut down for a period of time, you know, for our story, for our family story, even though we carried on separately. And what I want to make clear to anybody listening to this and who is going through this and they do have children, that the biggest thing that we've seen what happened in our relationship and what happens in a lot of relationships is the parents kind of take a divided force on the kids. We were never that way. Mm-hmm. Even though we didn't talk to each other, we didn't communicate at all with each other. When it came to the kids at school, at sports, at health, at anything, we were a united force on there. We were in meetings with each other. We were at hospitals with each other. You know, if, if it didn't matter if it was three o'clock in the morning and we had to go to rush to the emergency room with one of the kids. We, we were there. We were there together. And I think that's one of the biggest things during the blip that really kind of kept us connected. And and I think this is where a lot of couples and and where we were at the time, you always go back and it seems like you're always having the same fight. You're having the same this, you know, it could be over dumb stuff. It could be over whatever. And if we were going to be able to move forward, we can't go back. There's no way, there's no time machine. You know, Doc from Back to the Future is not coming with the DeLorean. He's not picking us up. He's not taking us back to refix what we did. So when we decided we were going to kind of move forward, it was like, let's erase that. There's good times in there with the kids. There's good times that we had, especially with our parents. My mom is no longer with us. Her stepdad is no longer with us. But the kids had that ability to have their grandparents around all the time. And we were still kind of a family, even though we didn't talk, but we don't talk about and dwell on what happened during that time and everything leading up to there. Because like we said, when when the rain started coming, it was one of those things where, okay, we started nitpicking at each other and we started picking at those little things. And that led into the divorce. And then after we were divorced and we didn't like each other, you know, we went back and we would revisit those arguments all the time again and again. Whenever we would start to be cordial with each other, those things just came up or a snide comment. And I know you talk about that in your seven secrets piece as well as you got to, you got to stop that, stop Mm -hmm. picking at those little things. So when we decided that we were going to get back together, let's just take that as a blip and alter timeline. Let's pick up from the great stuff that we remember and let's try to build from that forward and just erase that piece from our lives mentally, even though it didn't, it didn't happen physically, we could mentally replace that in our lives and just get rid of it. Actually, one half of me as the therapist is sort of, you know, let's dig in this and let's sort all of that stuff out. And then there's another half of me that thinks how wonderful that you can actually just parcel that away. You've learned from it. You know that actually picking the scab isn't going to work. Let's let it heal and let's start from here. So I'm sort of pulled in two directions on this sort of idea. That's okay. We'll call you back and we'll get into a session. (laughs) (laughs) Because we, st- I know we still have issues and stuff, but we'll call you on the next call. <laughs> but it sounds like, Gina, that this was a decision that you learned the hard way was the best way to approach it. Yes, it was. It was very hard. And I know he said we're going to not really get into the divorce, but I can say 
that while we were separated and divorced, the first, I'd say two years, I'll have a drink socially when I'm out with my girlfriends and things like that. We would do two weeks on and two weeks off with our boys because the boys were young, very young at the time. When I didn't have the boys, I'd say I was out three, four nights a week with friends drinking. That's not me at all, but that's how I coped. And I look back now and think, my gosh, I drank a lot. It sounds like a lot of pain. I was, but I just masked it. And I think Tommy thought I was fine. I was okay. And like he said, the only time we talked is when it had to do with the children. We wouldn't talk other than that. And friends and teachers at school, because the boys were at the same school, could feel the tension in the air. And I know the boys felt it, even though they were kids, they felt it. Kids know that. And I look back now and it just, it breaks my heart because I know they felt it. Our older son and I had a very hard time because he was older and he, I'm sure, could hear things and pick up on things. So it took my older son and I, it took us a long time to rebuild our relationship. So there you are, both of you, it sounds like, in a dark place, both mm-hmm. of you nitpicking each, each other, both of you cooperating for the children, but both of you, it sounds truly miserable. Mm-hmm. And somehow, we're going to call this divine intervention, the two of you got another chance, but it was a pretty dark other chance. <sighs> so who's going to tell me about this? Well, I'll tell you about it because I don't think Gina remembers much of it because of what happened. Um, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Since, yeah, go ahead. Since both of our boys you know, went to the same school and we did on and off, you know, for the weeks, I, I, I never went to Gina's place. Gina never really came to mind, but Gina suffers from migraines and she's, she's had her whole life. And sometimes they get so bad where she can't see. So she brought the boys home the one day after school. And I mean, it was just weird for her to ask me. She said, can I, I can't make it home. Can I just come in and lay down for a while? And and I can see when she has the migraine, her eyes change. I mean, there's just the glassiness. There's a, there's, there's just a deep nothing when you stare in her eyes. So I know <laughs> it's it not like that, but I mean, it's like that there, there's, there's nothing there. Her brain is, isn't functioning correctly, mm-hmm. you know, in there. And she asked if she could lay down. And I said, that was fine. So our older son stayed at my place and I took my younger son to guitar lessons. And in the middle of the guitar lesson, my, my older son called me and he said, daddy goes, uh, there's something really wrong with mom. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, she's not making sense. It, it's, it's, I can't talk to her. She's not making sense. So he had put her on the phone and it was just rambling. It was just out of, I mean, I can't even explain. It was like speaking in tongues. And I got my younger son out of there. I'm like, I'm on my way home. There's something not right. I came home. I, I looked at her and she, she, you know, for a half a second, she was fine. And then she'd, she'd go back into this, this rambling. And I'm like, come on, let's go to the hospital. And, and both of us, you know, naturally, no, we're not going to the hospital. You know, that's money we don't have. And so I said, no, we're going. Something is definitely, definitely wrong. We're not doing this. So on our way to the car, Gina had 
fallen off the curb. And I'm like, are you, or basically stumbled off the curb. And I said, are, are you okay? And she's like, no, I can't move my leg. And so we got in the car. And as soon as we got to the hospital, I went in in the emergency room and I said, I think my wife's having a stroke. They rushed her in the back. And, you know, since I was no longer Gina's husband, they wouldn't give me any information. And I was just, I just sat in the waiting room. Well, come to find out that they had a medevac helicopter on the way because they thought Gina had a serious brain injury. They, they couldn't figure out what was going wrong. It wasn't a normal stroke. They couldn't diagnose what was going on. And I mean, the doctor told us, luckily, 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 minutes, if we wouldn't have got to the hospital in that time, it, it's something that could have been extremely, extremely devastating. And when the nurse came out and asked for Gina's emergency contact information, and, you know, that would have been her parents at the time, you know, I kind of told her we have kids at home and, you know, I would make the call that Gina and I are on, on good terms and I would make the call. And the first thing I thought before I made the call was, oh my God, if I go home and she's in this bad of a condition, is she going to make it out of here? What am I going to tell my kids if, if I don't bring Gina home? And it was one of those things where I had to call her parents. Her mom was on the first flight out uh, that she could. And it, what happened was Gina had what's called a hemiplegic migraine. It's a migraine that goes into a stroke and gives you stroke-like symptoms. Some people recover. Some people don't. It's one of those things. But they were concerned because they seen the blood bleed in her brain. So they weren't sure if it, it was an aneurysm, some other brain injury. It was just out of the norm for the doctors there. But as Gina was able to recover from the hospital and come home, we both lived separately. And being that we, I mean, we were amicable, but we, we really didn't talk. There was no way, I mean, Gina couldn't bathe herself. She could barely walk. She couldn't talk. She had to learn how to talk again, walk, use her extremities, her arms, everything. I wasn't going to burden two young sons with that of taking care of their mother or, or having their mother leave and go out of state and we're separated even more as a family. So, you know, I, I always loved Gina deep down, no matter what happened in our lives, there was always that underlying love that me and her had for each other. And at that point, I, I had to make a decision. And my decision was that I was going to bring Gina to my place, move her out of hers, and I would help her rehab. And you know what? If she recovered, great. If not, I was prepared to stay with Gina the rest of my life and, and help her through all her trials. So what was it like when he said, you're coming to my place for rehab? What did you think? It made me love him even more. I mean, I never stopped loving him. I had to go to rehab three times a week because I was paralyzed on my left side. He took me every three days and he was always there because like he said, it was just he and I here and the boys. His mom wanted to take a leave of absence from work. And I knew his mom wasn't real crazy about me at the time. And she wanted to take a leave of absence from work and come down. And he said, no, mom, I got it. It's okay. And then we rekindled everything from there. And he took care of me. That happened in a February of 2012. 
and he took care of me. By end of April, I was doing a lot better. I could walk with a walker. And it, I mean, it was hard. It was a long journey. He made me do exercises at home and he helped me and it scared my younger son a lot more. So anytime I get a headache now, I mean, more in 2022, anytime I get a real bad headache, it's, I, it scares both the boys, but it scares, I think, startles and scares my younger son more because he'll always come back and check on me. Are you okay? Are you okay? Do you need anything? And he's 21 now. Mm. How did the falling back in love happen for you, Tommy? Well, I mean, it really wasn't, you know, like people who know us, it's kind of wasn't an overnight kind of thing. We we lived together for a while. And, you know, if, if we were to date other people at that time, it was fine. You know, we were kind of together as a family. And like I said, her relationship with my older son, it was kind of, it was kind of broken as they, they were repairing that relationship. And, and we both seen that the kids, they were making turns. They were doing better at school. They weren't kind of, you know, my one son wasn't, the younger son wasn't withdrawn. My older son, you know, he was kind of a, a pistol because all of this seemed to, you know, dial back a little bit. So, I mean, it was having an effect on everybody. And, you know, as we were getting back together, you know, my mom realized she always knew we were in love, you know, from, from day one. She accepted Gina back in. Her family accepted me back in because of if I was going to put myself through helping her through that, they they knew I I wasn't going to do anything to take advantage of her or do anything like that. And just over time, as our communication skills built with each other, and and I think this time around we were able to open up with each other. And I know it's with a lot of couples going through struggles, it's easier to talk to somebody else than it is to talk to each other. Mm. Over this time, since there was really no, I wouldn't say marriage, or there wasn't the Catholic aspect of you had to do this, you have to save this, you have to do this. When all of that was kind of lifted off of us, and we knew that we could go our separate ways if, if we needed to. It actually brought us closer together and we built communication styles with each other. And we kind of, we determined our own happiness. We didn't care what other people thought. There's people that th- didn't think we should be together. You know, you guys should separate. You should do this, you know, whatever. But when we started listening to ourselves, it kind of changed everything. So what have you learned about forgiveness? Because I think there's been quite a bit of forgiving going on here of each other and yourselves, to be perfectly honest. Yes. Well, like you said, you can't sweat the small stuff. You have to let that go. And whatever happened in our past, I look at it this way. You can't look through the rearview mirror. You're not going backwards. You have to look through the windshield. You're going forward. We're not going back. Did I make mistakes in our marriage? Of course I did. I know I did. Did Tommy make mistakes in our marriage? Of course he did. But in any relationship, there are mistakes. And if you're going to hold on to those mistakes that your partner made, you're never going to get through it. You just have to let it go and move forward and learn from your mistakes. But I feel communication is the key part. You have to talk to one another. And if you're not ready to talk right then and there, I'll have to say to Tommy, look, 
I am upset on something that you did or, or, or we need to talk about it, but I just, I can't talk right now, but just give me a minute or, or give me some time to just calm down or get my thoughts together. And then I want us to sit down and talk. And Tommy will be like, okay, that's fine. I understand. Or just sometimes I just need to take a breath and say, okay, this is how I'm feeling. Just hear me out. Don't interrupt. Just listen. And he's great with that. So what have you learned about forgiveness, Tommy? I think the biggest thing is forgiving myself. Again, I I was so set and determined on having to be the father I didn't have, having to be the husband that my mom didn't have. I carried that for years. And I think once I kind of let that go, you know, that was the forgiveness I needed for myself to kind of move forward in, in our relationship because I had to be me. And even though there is so many books out there on marriage, there's no blueprint for your marriage. You can't take what somebody else did and put that in the yours and, and fix it that way or take the broken piece of their marriage and trying to e- eliminate that. And, and that's what I did. I took that broken piece and I held on to that for years to try to fix that. You know, a men's mentality is I can fix anything. But you know what? I can fix anything mechanical. I can fix a car. I can fix something. But the the big thing is, if I can't fix that, I can throw it out and get a new one. In life, you, you, you can't do that. You know, so I had to leave that mentality go that I can fix everything. And, and you can't. So how do you communicate differently, do you think, in marriage number two rather than marriage number one? I would just say the overall openness that was there. Again, we held a lot of things inside, uh, both of us on, on, on both sides. We held it inside. And I think now that we're able to talk about it and, and we're going in a good direction, you know, it, naturally it's, it's easier to talk about stuff when you're going in a better direction than when you're going in a bad direction. But we're able to communicate better. Be- and it could be maturity. It, it just could be of everything that happened to us. But I think our communication skills have just greatly improved with each other. And, and we know each other more on an intimate level. I'm not saying sex-wise or anything like that, but, but deeply on, on what each other's needs are. And we didn't ask before, you know, I need this, I need that, I need whatever. We, we did a lot of assuming. And now if we, we aren't getting something, we ask each other, you know, I'd like to do this, or I need this. And we were able to c- communicate that way because I think that was lost. We were just trying to assume everything we did in the first marriage. And again, it, nobody teaches you how to be married either. Again, tons of books, but it has to be your marriage. It can't be what anybody else is. And I think that when you um, have known each other for so long, the temptation to assume I know everything about you, because I've known you since you were 13 or 15 years old is so incredibly strong. But I mean, this is going to be not going to be any surprise, but you're not the same person as you were then. Correct. And life does change us, whether we want it to or not. And we are different people. And almost, we have to keep checking back in again, that, you know, many years ago, you might have liked meatloaf, but you might not like it anymore. I still love meatloaf, so... (laughs) Tina never makes it for me, though, because she doesn't like it. (laughs) I've obviously got a sixth sense that I've somehow managed to just pull out of random something. 
Well, you said that and I elbowed him. (laughs) The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the things we do on the podcast is if you've got an issue that you would like to write into us, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, and you can write to us and I will get my witnesses to give us some some of their thoughts on the subject and I will share you mine as well. And here's a letter that um, I've received. I've been married 13 years and my wife and I were together five years prior to that. We met at university and neither have ever really had other relationships. My wife told me recently that she's fallen out of love with me and has been having thoughts about leaving for years. We started counselling together and individually about three weeks ago and while I thought things were progressing, in our couple session yesterday, she said she did not think what was wrong with us was fixable and that we need to start a plan to separate, and that makes it easy on the children. I respect her for thinking of the children, but my heart is absolutely broken. We do have communication issues. I have not been the best listener. I'm a confrontational person who says what's on his mind. My wife is the opposite. She's kept all her feelings about us bottled up until the last month, when it all came spiralling out. She's told me that she needs to start living for herself, not me. She wants to grow as a person, and I'm not the person she thinks can help her with that. Last night, my wife told me that we need to take things day by day, while I told her I'm not ready to give up and have asked her to keep her mind open to alternate endings to our problems, i.e. separation is not inevitable. Our therapist has told me to give my wife psychic space and to be patient. What else can I do? Can you help me with the next steps? What can I do or should I do to help this to a happy conclusion, which in my mind means keeping my family together? So I think we need a woman's um, take on this one first, Gina. So what did you think reading this letter? Well, my first thought is three weeks is not long for being in therapy. Like Tommy and I had said earlier, communication is the key part. She needs to let her husband know exactly what she feels is missing in their marriage, what she feels had been missing and is missing in their marriage and what she wants. Again, three weeks, and you're the professional, but three weeks is not a long time at all. It's not like they've been in it for three years and she's still feeling the same way. I feel, this is just my opinion, I feel she needs to give therapy a lot longer and also communicate with her husband what exactly she feels she is missing out of their marriage and what she feels she wants and that she's not getting from him. And Tommy, what did you think? I think at this point in reading the letter is they were, they're kind of at the point where myself and Gina were. You know, you're at the last moment and now you're trying to backpedal. And again, the the communication was gone and you have to learn how to do that. Look, I don't advocate for divorce. 
I think that like myself and Gina, if we were to work things through, I don't think the divorce would have ever happened. I do advocate for divorce if there is abuse of some kind in there, physical, mental, any kind of, of abuse in the relationship, then yes, that's the only reason I could see a divorce that's imminent. From the letter, it sounds like they just have communication problems. They don't they don't understand how to communicate. And again, that could go back to how they were reared as a child, what they seen at home, what they're bringing forward to there. Again, he sounds a lot like I, I am, you know, or I was. But as far as, you know, her keeping everything bottling up inside, that's one of those things where she needs to let him know, like, like Gina said, what she expects. You know, there's, there's no mind reading. There's no anything. But the one thing I, I want to make clear in this point, and me and Gina are huge advocates of this, is the, the term kids are resilient. When it comes to divorce, though, that's a fallacy. It's usually a statement made by the parent or parent for self-justification. What you may process as an adult as we need to start doing this for the, the children, again, if it's an abusive kind of relationship, yes, you need to get out of that. If it's anything besides that, how a child processes this is totally different than how you process it. Depending on the age of their children, if they're young children, they still believe a man in a red suit comes down at Christmas time and puts Christmas presents under the tree. A fairy comes in when they lose a tooth. And, you know, that's how kids are processing that time. And they're going to use their processing skills to kind of put that together. Where it came into my and Gina's life too is, you know, our parents going through that. We've seen it at young ages, but we brought that forward. You know, I don't think there'd be therapy. Nobody would need therapy if everybody was perfect. You know, at some point, something happened in your life to cause some kind of traumatic event. But the big thing here is communication. Maybe they do need to separate, take that step back, keep the children intimately involved in their lives. You know, don't just disappear, but take that step back, continue counseling because at three weeks, both sides really aren't telling the truth. They're telling their version of the story. And eventually in therapy, as as you know, those versions change and the truth eventually comes out. Then that's where you get through the breakthrough. And then that's where you can sit there and start the rekindling aspect of it. But right now it still sounds raw. It still sounds that it's just going to be a a gut reaction just to, I got to do something and I got to do it now. Because what I'm feeling is a huge amount of anxiety coming through in this letter. And when we're anxious... The thing we want more than anything else is to make things better. And the way we think we're going to make it better is trying to get a positive answer. So you're all the time pushing your wife to say something positive. You're pushing her to say, yes, I will keep an open mind. But every time you push her, she's feeling that you're not listening to her. And if you're not listening to her, she feels you will not change. And if you're not going to change, then she doesn't want to be in this relationship. And so the really difficult part of this is you need to be patient, not just with her, but with yourself. And when you feel that anxiety, I want you to sort of notice, I'm feeling anxious, take a couple of breaths, and then instead of actually trying to magic it away, 
actually you're going to have to do the the hardest thing of all, which is say to your wife, tell me more about that. Because if she feels that you're really listening to her that about the fact that, you know, you need to take it seriously, that she's truly unhappy in this relationship, she wants to go out. If you're really listening to her and you're saying, tell me more about that, and she actually hears those words aloud and she lets you and you let her say them rather than trying to argue with her when she will suddenly start arguing back, she might in her own in her own mind, begin to question some of these things. But if you're questioning them for her, she'll never get to that point. So really, the thing that you can do the best is, number one, bite your tongue. Number two is bite your tongue again. And number three is bite the inside of your cheek and nod and say, tell me more. And when she's finished, you can then tell her how you're feeling. But I'd much rather actually you told her how you're feeling rather than what you think that she should do. So tell her that you're brokenhearted. Tell her that you're anxious. Tell her that you're frightened. But don't try and convince her about what she should be doing. Because if she feels she can't talk to you because you're going to immediately panic and start arguing the other side of the story, she is going to shut up. And the minute she shuts up, off she will go. And in my experience, women don't particularly want to leave. It's just their husbands panic so much, they effectively, with their panic, push her out the door. So if you take just one thing away from this is your panic is pushing her away. And the more you panic, the further she will go. So if you can just listen, repeat back, oh, so you were really upset when I didn't cook any meatloaf for you, then she will really feel that you are listening and that something is different. Always think, what do I normally do? And do the opposite, because what you've been doing up to now ain't working. So, you know, even if it actually isn't brilliant, it's going to be better than the same old, same old. I hope that is helpful to you. Well, thank you, Tommy and Gina, for being my witnesses on The Meaningful Life today. I have to turn the tables on you and ask each of you what makes your life meaningful. Let's have Gina first. Well, what makes my life meaningful is having Tommy and our two sons in it and just being married to Tommy again. Um, I'm glad we got back together for, what, the 15th time. Um, I'm glad we worked things out. I couldn't see my life without Tommy in it. And I'm glad we're moving forward. Uh, We do communicate a lot better with one another. And I hope to be sitting on a porch with Tommy one day in our rocking chairs and drinking sweet tea. Well, wait, we don't drink sweet tea, even though we're in the South. We don't drink sweet tea. We drink unsweet. That's our Northern part of us. But I am. I'm very glad to have Tommy back in my life and growing old with him. And thank you for having us on your show. I very much enjoyed it. Tommy, what uh, makes your life meaningful? I think what makes my life meaningful is I was able to exercise the demons of, uh, again, try to fix what my father you know, had done and, and learn how to do that and being able to raise two remarkable young men, you know, and, and be able to, you know, give them a good start in their life. And that I was able to get back with 
my love, my love at first sight kind of person and, you know, do that. And again, like she said, we hope to be sitting on a port someday and rocking chairs all the way to the very end. Well, unfortunately, this is where the conversation ends, unless you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life. Because if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, I'm going to be asking Tommy and Gina three things they know deep down to be true. And I'm going to be sharing with them and um, supporters the seven failed strategies for persuading your partner and uh, three that um, do work. I'm going to be seeing um, if they agree with me or not. So that's seven failed strategies for persuading your partner and three successful ones. And we'll be finding out three things they know deep down to be true. So if you'd like to become a supporter or to hear this, if you're on Apple, there's a special button where you can subscribe to us. The same with Spotify. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, here come the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.